my wife is guilty of the cardinal sin in Western PA. She is not a Steelers fan. (laughs) So... My wife is not a Steelers fan, and my wife is here. My wife is sitting up in the sound booth teaching Rebecca how to run the computer. So, uh, so there's nothing I can say that's going to escape punishment for this later. <laughs> but, uh, but my wife is guilty of the cardinal sin in Western PA. She is a football fan, and she loves the Broncos. And, it's, and I don't care about football at all, which I guess is like the second cardinal sin. But, but you know, I watch football for her, but I don't really watch football. But she is guilty of this cardinal sin, right? And, and you say, well, why are you bringing up the fact that she is a Broncos fan? It's because I want to talk about the Broncos this morning as an illustration. Now, I would talk about the Steelers as an illustration, but this didn't happen with the Steelers. It happened with the Broncos, so I have to talk about the Broncos. So would you just say right now, Pastor, we forgive you. There, thank you. All right. So we're going to talk about the Broncos, and I know that that's going to be tough for some of us, and especially some of the things that I'm going to say. Now, I'm not criticizing Big Ben here, okay? Amen? I'm not criticizing Big Ben. Some of you, the way they're playing this year, might want me to criticize Big Ben, but I'm not criticizing Big Ben. And you guys, they're they're first in the division. They've recovered. I know they got beat by the Browns, but they recovered, all right? So anyways, Peyton Manning is arguably one of the best quarterbacks of all times. <laughs> so, <laughs> wow. I am really racking my brain to try to think of a different sermon illustration because the peanut gallery is going to be talking the whole time. <laughs> but <laughs> he's got, he, he's got, at this point, he's, got the, I want to say the all-time completion record, just several different things that's going on with Peyton Manning. I mean, the guy has proven this time and time and time and time again, that he's one of the great ones. Now, I didn't say he's the best one. I'm not going to argue about who's the best one, you know, because I think, you know, you might be the best at the time, but you're not necessarily the best forever, you know, circumstances and all of that dictate. But he's arguably one of the best quarterbacks of all time. He has three Super Bowl appearances, and one of those was a win. Three Super Bowl appearances and one of those is a win. If you have a Super Bowl ring that you have personally won, raise your hand. So he is far better. (laughs) He is far better than all of us, right? So now I I couldn't say that with the Steelers in the room because there's like there'd be multiple hands going up for some of those guys. But my point of this is, you know, he's got three Super Bowl appearances and one win. One win in the Super Bowl. He's proven to be the kind of quarterback that can lead a team to victory, right? And, and all of this in the midst of him having this possibly career-ending neck injury, right? This career-ending neck injury is hovering over him like a cloud of impending doom, you know? Like when, when the Broncos looked at signing Peyton Manning, some people were, were really excited, some people were really depressed, and not just because of, well, we really like Tebow. They were like, okay, he's a great quarterback, but... But first of all, he hasn't played in the whole last season. He didn't play at all. And they're saying if he takes one wrong hit, 
He's probably paralyzed from the neck down when he had the spinal fusion. You know, and so it really was this powerful thing, uh, powerful controversy when he was signed with the Broncos. But there are three people whose confidence never wavered when they signed him. Now, first of all, when Indianapolis signed him before they released him, they signed him to a five-year, $90 million deal. I'd like one of those. I'm sure all of you would too, you know. And when they were doing this, he said, when they were negotiating this contract with him, he said, I don't have to be the highest played the highest paid player in football. I don't, I'm not saying that I got to do that to stay at Indianapolis. I mean, he wanted to stay at Indianapolis. He, his contract with Denver, five years, $96 million. Denver even paid him more after, after Indianapolis released him. Right? Now, why does this happen? Now, my wife will tell you, the greatest quarterback of all time, which I don't know that she's right, was John Elway. And uh, she and but John Elway is the executive vice president of football operations for the Denver Broncos. Elway never wavered in his faith that Peyton Manning was the guy for the job. All of the storm of criticism was coming at Elway for making this decision, and you got to understand. Elway was approached about his role with the Broncos and probably could have had John Fox's job as the head coach, but did not feel like he was qualified to be a head coach because he couldn't do all the day in, day out kind of things that a head coach does. So this is a, but this is a guy who now is making like one of these major decisions for the team. And so he never wavered. Peyton Manning never wavered. Peyton Manning never wavered a bit. And then, 84-year-old Frank Trapucca never wavered. Now, be honest. How many of you know who Frank Trapucca is? <laughs> if it was not for Frank Trapucca, Peyton Manning would not be wearing number 18 on the Denver Broncos. The number 18 on the Denver Broncos is a retired number. Guess who had it when it was retired for them? Frank Trapucca. At 84 years old, Frank Trapucca believed so strongly that Peyton Manning was the guy to lead this team forward. He called the office and said to them, if it helps get him here, he can wear 18. That's his number. I'll let it come out of retirement for him, retire it again after he leaves. But I'll let it... I let him have it. Frank Trapucca was so certain that Peyton Manning was going to bring glory and honor to the number 18 that he's willing to let it come out of retirement. You know, they said nobody else in our, in our organization is ever going to wear this again because they're never going to measure up. But the guy who was the reason it was put aside said, man, he's as good or better than I was. Put it on him. Let him wear it. This amidst all of the criticism, against all of the firestorm and the controversy surrounding Peyton signing with the Broncos. All of this. There are three folks whose faith never wavered. Now, since becoming a Bronco, Manning has led the team into two postseason runs for the Lombardi Trophy, 
2012 saw them fall short of the AFC Championship. I don't know if it's going to get some boos and hisses, probably, because they lost to the Ravens. And we know how everybody in Western PA feels about the Ravens, right? So, you know, the... Uh, <clears throat> yeah. But anyways, 2013 saw them make it all the way to the Super Bowl, only to lose to the Seahawks, right? Now, some people can, can say, oh, yeah, you know, he doesn't have what it takes and all those things. But this isn't too bad of a record for a guy who was, by most fans, considered to be past his prime and desperately in need of retirement. Not too bad of a record for a guy who had this neck injury hovering over him like impending doom and being told, you should never play football again. He didn't play the 2011 season because in the beginning of the season he couldn't even throw a ball hard enough. He couldn't even throw a ball hard enough. And in 2012, he's a starting quarterback for an NFL franchise and takes them all the way to the AFC Championship. And in 2011, he couldn't even throw a ball the right way. It's pretty amazing. No matter what you think about Peyton Manning, that's pretty stinking amazing. Not too bad for a guy who's supposed to be done. So what is it that helped Peyton Manning to make this huge comeback? I mean, he had a near career-ending injury, two surgeries, ending in, a, ending in a fusion of some of his uh, vertebrae in his neck. What makes him come back? Guys, in short, it's the difference that confidence makes. It's the difference that confidence makes. Peyton Manning had confidence in his ability. This confidence brought him back from the brink of an ended career. And it is this type of confidence that the author of Hebrews is talking about in our passage today. And this confidence that the author of Hebrews is talking about will make all the difference in how we live out our faith. So if you would open your Bibles with me to Hebrews chapter 10, starting in verse 19. Hebrews chapter 10, starting in verse 19. And, you know, while you're turning there, I'm reading from the English Standard Version. You may be reading from a different translation. That's okay. Just follow along with me as best you can. Here's what the Scriptures say. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus Christ, by the new and living way that He opened for us through the curtain, that is, through His flesh... And since we have a great high priest over the house of God, two things, we have confidence that comes from the sacrifice of Jesus and we have a great high priest. Both of these are going to be important. Let us draw near in verse 22. Let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast to the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And, I always love an and, not optional. This isn't an and or. Let us consider how to stir one another up to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more 
as you see the day drawing near. The difference confidence makes. This passage starts by talking about confidence and a great high priest and then tells us to operate out of that. And that's what we're going to explore today. And I know that Peyton Manning may seem like a stretch when we talk about this passage, but we're going to stop right now and ask the Holy Spirit to speak and teach us today. And then we're going to see if this makes sense. Let's pray. Father, you are a loving dad. Jesus, you are a wonderful Savior. Holy Spirit, you are a beautiful comforter. And we ask you right now, the triune three-part God, to speak into our lives. Help us to understand the scriptures. Open up our hearts to what you would have to say. And in Jesus' name we pray. And God's people said, Amen. Now you got to understand, before I go on, as I talk about faith like football, I'm not really a football fan. So talking about a football illustration is a little rough for me. So bear with me if I make any mistakes about football, okay? But the author of Hebrews points out in this passage of Scripture, as we've just read, that Jesus' atoning work on the cross grants us two things that we need. That's the first few verses in this passage. Jesus' atoning work on the cross grants us two things that we need. The first thing that it grants us is confidence to stand unashamed before God. That's in verses 19 and 20. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way he opened for us, through the curtain that is uh, through his flesh, right? So that whole thing right there is this confidence in in his blood. This is what we've been talking about for the last several weeks. We've talked about it quite a bit inside of the book of Hebrews about this confidence. Remember, I, I have confidence to approach the throne of God boldly. Because I know that what he has done for me has cleansed me. Now, some people, again, I I know I keep bringing this up. Some people say it's a matter of perspective. Some people argue against it, but it's not. We are not sinners. We are saints. We have confidence. He said in last week's passage, he made us perfect. We are perfect. I had somebody uh, in, a, in another church that I pastored te- constantly tell me, this is just your perspective. This is just what you think is true. And it's nowhere in the Bible. And I'm like, no, it's right here. I've had people come to me when we've had conversations like this and say, well, I don't know the Bible well enough to argue with you about this. I just know that this isn't true. <laughs> Our feelings don't define truth. And, and, and why am I making such a big deal out of this is because we have to know how dearly loved we are of God and to be able to approach Him in confidence. Peyton Manning had to know that he had what it took to be able to go in confidence to the Broncos. And you and I have to know that we have this assurance in Jesus Christ through His blood to approach the throne of God confidently and boldly knowing that God has forgiven us and accepts us. It's so critical. It is so critical. The the second thing that the high priest 
is this, is that we have a high priest capable of leading us to victory. That's verse 21. And since we have a great high priest over the house of God, and then he goes into what we're supposed to do. So we have confidence and we have this great high priest, right? Now, I want to bring this back to Peyton Manning, okay, for you to understand. See, the Denver Broncos as a team had to come to the point where they realized that Peyton Manning was a great quarterback and could lead them still. They had to have confidence in his ability. I know it's just John Elway and Frank Trapeca and, and Manning himself that had confidence in this in the beginning. And, and the owners of the Broncos had confidence in Elway making the decision. They said, if you think he's the right guy, we'll trust you. Right? But eventually the whole team had to believe that Elway, or not Elway, excuse me, that Manning had what it took. This is what it means to have a great high priest. See, we have confidence that we're accepted, but then we also have to have a belief that our great high priest has what it takes. Let me give you a different illustration to help you understand what I mean by having this confidence in this great high priest who's going to lead the team and that I know is capable of leading us to victory. People sometimes struggle with me saying this, and I and and they don't understand my heart in it, and hopefully everybody understands it here. But if Oil City Community Alliance Church closes tomorrow, it does not mean that I am a bum or a loser as a pastor. Because I know that the Bible says that Jesus Christ will grow this church. It's his job. It's my job to follow him. He's the quarterback. He's the one who calls the plays. He's like Manning. We're on the field and we can have the playbook memorized and he calls an audible and we need to get in line with the audible, right? And that's like Manning's, I don't even think they really call plays in the huddle. (laughs) You know, that guy calls so many audibles. But, you know, but that's the whole thing. Like, I have this confidence in Jesus and I know that the success or, or failure of Oil City Community Alliance Church doesn't rest on me. If it rests on me, guys, it's going to fail. If it rests on you, it's going to fail. But if it rests on him, it's going to make it. It's going to continue to grow spiritually and numerically. Things are going to continue to happen because our God is that good. And I think what happens in communities and and churches where the church begins to shrink and begins to struggle is that we begin trusting in things other than the head of the church. We begin trusting in the plans the pastor or the elders or the deacons come up with. Or we get to trust it in our plans as as a committee member or whatever. And we forget that we have a great high priest who is standing there ready to call plays, ready to lead us to victory and all of those things. And so we get our eyes off of that quarterback, that spiritual quarterback, Jesus Christ... And we get to go in ways that we shouldn't go. And then that kind of causes us to panic more when things start going bad, which causes us to keep our eyes off of him more. But you have to understand, the author of Hebrews is saying there's two things in here that we need to have. Confidence that we are righteous and redeemed. And the recognition that we have a high priest who is capable of leading us to victory and to keep our eyes and our focus on that. In other words, the character and the competence of the team leader rubs off on us as we keep our eyes on him. 
This is what it means when Jesus comes into my life and fills me with his Holy Spirit. You think about this. The confidence in the character of Peyton Manning has rubbed off on other players of the team. He's there leading and they're getting better. Just because of his leadership. Just because they trust him. This happens not just with Peyton Manning. This happens with other quarterbacks. This happens with head coaches. I mean, think about how many times a head coach has been replaced. Same team. Just a different head coach. And all of a sudden, man, everybody's playing to a better level. Because of that coach's character and competence is rubbing off on those around him. As he has confidence. As he has not not a not a uh, arrogant side, but as he has confidence and a boldness to go out there and say, "We can win." All of a sudden, that begins to rub off on people. Begins to rub off on those that are around that leader. Because the point that I'm trying to make is, I talk about Peyton Manning. He's a great leader on the field, but Jesus is an infinitely better leader than Peyton Manning, and therefore his presence should inspire us to greater things than a Super Bowl win. Let me say it to you this way. When I, as a pastor, have begun to despair or lack confidence, lose confidence in in a vision and direction that God is leading us, when I have had those things happen in other churches, things have started going downhill. My attitude, my confidence in our leader, the head of the church, dictated for our body good and bad things. Sometimes I had confidence, but everybody else was down in the dirt. And things stayed down until we could bolster the morale and confidence of of everyone. I mean, even the army realizes this is true. I served in the army for almost nine years. And while I was in the army, they would, they would work on boosting unit morale just to mess with, just to get people's attitudes better. Because when our attitudes were better and we thought we could do it, we accomplished amazing things. But these are all earthly examples. How much more should the presence of Jesus, who is an infinitely better leader than anybody that has ever walked the face of the earth is, how much more should His physical presence in our life inspire us to do great and wonderful things for Him? Shouldn't it empower us? I mean, if this is the God who is holding together everything that we see by His act of His will, Shouldn't we have confidence that he can help us with leading our estranged child to the Lord? That, that, that child who's not only walked away from God, but walked away from the family? Shouldn't we have confidence that he can step into that work situation where we're at? Shouldn't that inspire us to do great things? Shouldn't that, as we're looking at doing an initiative to reach out in our community as a church, shouldn't that inspire us to do great things? Shouldn't we be empowered by His Spirit? See, in a very practical way, the empowerment of the Spirit, which is a core value of of our church, that we believe without the empowerment of the Spirit, we can do nothing. In a very practical way, the empowerment of the Spirit is often quenched by our lack of confidence in it. 
God has come in. We've asked Him, come in, fill us. We've had an experience that we know that He has came and filled us, and yet we still walk in defeat because we do not have our eyes firmly on Jesus, affixed on Him, believing that He can make a difference. And this has been an issue all throughout Christianity. That's why the author of Hebrews writes about it here. That's why old... old uh, Saints of old wrote stuff like, Turn your eyes upon Jesus, look full in his wonderful face. Right? Teaching us to look at Jesus. Teaching us to keep our eyes on the author and perfecter of our faith. That he's the one that does all of this. Constant theme that's all throughout Christianity. However, we often don't do that. We often don't walk in this confidence. We often don't walk in this boldness knowing, I am righteous before God. And I have a great quarterback who can lead this team to victory. And so what happens? We cower in fear. Woe is me. I've lost my job and I'm going to go under and I'm going to cower in fear and I'm going to sit here in despair. Or, or, or the city has come in and said that we can't park on the street anymore. And no, they really haven't said that. But, you know, we're, gonna, we're not going to be able to do it. We don't have the parking we need here. Oh, there's not enough money to pay the bills, or there's not this, or there's not that, and so we cower in fear. That's one of the things that happens when we don't have that confidence. Another thing, really common, we live base and sinful lives. You know how many Christians I know that live like the world? And, And to be honest with you, I kind of struggle if they're even a Christian. I'm not saying they're not. But I, but I wonder if you look exactly like the world, are you not still of the world? But how many Christians live based in sinful lives? Or maybe not in all areas of their life, but there's these areas that, well, I can't tell you how many Christian men I've heard tell me that they're never going to get out of the cycle of pornography. Because they do not believe that the God of all the universe who is holding everything together by the act of His will can deliver them. They won't say that. But that's how they live. Or marriages that are falling apart or different things that are going on. We continue to live in these base and sinful ways because we lack the confidence to boldly go before God and say, You can fix this. I know you can. And I am righteous and and I am worth your time. Or we waver. It's another thing we do. We waver when trouble and temptation comes. Let me tell you a promise in Scripture. Promise in Scripture says this. There is no temptation that has ever overcome you that is not common to man. And when tempted, He will not let you be tempted beyond that which you can endure And He will provide the way of escape. You have never been faced with a sin. A temptation to sin. Where you had no other choice but to sin. It's never happened to you ever. Not ever in your life has that happened. If it has, Jesus is a liar. Let's hang it up and go home. He says he's never let that happen to you. He's never going to let you be able to tempt, be tempted beyond that which you can stand. But when tempted, he will provide the way of escape. You know why we often don't see the way of escape? Because we won't look up. We won't look up and say, Jesus, how do I get out of this? 
or we have confident a lack of confidence that we're righteous. You know, I could I could be struggling with a, with the pornography. You know, I, I'm not right now, but I could be struggling with that. And the and the way of escape, the Lord might say to me, Jerry, call Rick Burris on the phone and tell him you're struggling with this. And I won't do it because I'm not confident in my righteousness, and I think maybe Rick's going to judge me. Now I picked Rick for the example because I don't think he will. But you see, my point is that he provides a way of escape and we don't have confidence in our righteousness, in our standing before God. So I won't ask a brother or sister to help me because they'll, they'll, they'll judge me. They'll think I'm bad, all of these kind of things. And so I waver in temptation and I waver when trials come. Or I make an excuse on why we fail to follow Jesus fully. I hear that all the time. Well... This and this and this and this. And, and one of these days when all of these things work out, I'm going to do it. Hmm. Or this one. We excuse one another's sin. We coddle each other in it. Well, you know, we've got to give them grace. Now, guys, I want you to understand something. Next week, we're going to get into Hebrews 10.26 that says there is absolutely no grace for somebody who knows what they're doing is sin. It is New Testament. It is right after all of this stuff about trusting in your righteousness and all of this stuff. But if you are in known rebellion to God, there is no grace until you repent. We cannot coddle one another in our sin. If I am in sin, somebody, a brother or sister who loves me needs to come to me and say, Pastor, you're in sin. You need to stop this. Not, oh, well, let's just give him grace and let him keep on sinning. No, there's no grace. There's no grace if I know what I'm doing is wrong. Grace only comes when I repent. I know some of you are thinking I'm going to a little extreme. Just wait till next Sunday. He says, there no longer remains. Well, let's just read it real quick so that I can go on. For if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. Wow, it's pretty harsh. That's God's words, not my words. So we can't coddle one another in our sin. The good news is that God knew that we were going to struggle with problems like this. He knew that we were going to try to coddle one another in our sins. He knew that we were going to waver in our faith. He knew that sometimes we were going to fall into temptation. He knew that there were going to be times that we would cower in fear. He knew all of these things. And so, He gave us some encouragement through the book of Hebrews. And all of this encouragement to keep on fighting the fight of faith is based out of two facts that we must know. Number one, the forgiveness that Jesus' blood provides gives us confidence to stand unashamed before God. And number two, that we have a great high priest who is more than capable of leading us to a victory. And if you can't get those two things, these next three things that I'm going to talk about how he wants us to live are not going to work. You cannot simply do these next three things. You have to first have the confidence in Jesus and the righteousness that He gives you and His ability to continue to lead you. So what is God encouraging us to do? 
There are three action steps I think that God is encouraging us to do, and I want to stick with the football illustration, right? Now, every football team has a playbook, right? Every football team, I don't care, peewee league football, all the way to the NFL, they've all got a playbook. Some of them playbook a little bit smaller, right? Some of them's playbook, like the Broncos, has a whole lot of audibles in it, right? <clears throat> but the difference between the playbook that, that the football teams like the Broncos and all that have and the playbook that Jesus has, Jesus' playbook, if you do what he says and run the play like he said, it always works. It never fails if you do it the way he tells you to do it. Now, I, I understand that sometimes success for him doesn't look exactly like success looked in our mind, right? Like, well, I ran the play the way he said, and I thought the church would be 5,000. Now, this isn't a criticism. I'm not criticizing with what I'm getting ready to say. But when we came into this building over 20 years ago, do you know how big the playbook that they wrote up for the vision says the church should be right now? Several thousand people should be going to church here. Wendy found all the old plans. They were dreaming. They were believing that God was going to lead us to, to this success. Now, here's the deal. We've had success. It looks different than what we thought it was going to look like. But it's still success, amen? Okay, we have a, a church that is spiritually growing in unity with one another and loving one another, and it looks different, and that's okay. And, that's, and I only use that illustration to say sometimes success doesn't look exactly the way we thought it was going to look before it happened. It looks different. <clears throat> but Jesus' plan, it always works, guys. And so the first play in our playbook is the one we've been talking a lot about at OCCA, a whole lot about it. It comes out of verse 22, and it says, We must draw near to God in faith and embrace a life of purity. Verse 22 let us draw near with a true heart. This is after having a great high priest and confidence. Let us draw near with a true heart. This is the first command in this passage of Scripture. This is the first thing we're being told to do. We're giving propositions that help us believe. And now the author is telling us, now do this as a result. Draw near to God with full assurance. With hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience. And our bodies washed with pure water. See, I think one of the things that oftentimes stops us from drawing, walking boldly into God's presence is that we know that we have sin in our life that we are not repentant of. There is nowhere in the New Testament or the Old Testament that says that it is okay for you to sin. Nowhere. We have to draw close to God, draw near to Him in confidence and full assurance with purity of life. Friends, the Christian and Missionary Alliance is part of the holiness movement. 
I have heard men and women, I've mentioned this before from the pulpit, who have said about other churches in our region, oh, but that's one of those holiness churches. Guys, we're one of those holiness churches. We are one of those holiness churches. The Christian and Missionary Alliance believes that it matters how you live as a Christian because the Bible says that it matters how you live as a Christian. Everybody says Christianity is not about rules, it's about relationship. Amen to a point. What a lot of people mean is if I have the relationship, I can do whatever I want. No, that's not what Christianity is about. Christianity is about a relationship with Jesus. That transforms your behavior. And the scriptures describe what holy behavior looks like. No sexual immorality. No debauchery. Debauchery. How many of you actually know what debauchery means? You ready to know what it means? It means doing something that will pleasure your, 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 nerve, your nervous system. Doing something strictly for the physical pleasure that it gives you. Wow. That means debauchery is like this huge coverall for a lot of junk we do. <laughs> right? Pleasuring the senses. And that's not saying we can't ever have a pleasurable experience. But debauchery is, is going, I want this experience, this pleasure thing. And that's what my pursuit is. That's debauchery. Anyways, I digress. We have to, we have to start living our, our life as Christians like our old life, our old sinful life is gone. But I don't think a lot of us do that. I don't think a lot of us do that. We continue to pursue sin, continue to pursue the same activities that we always pursued before Jesus came. There's no transformation. There's no conviction. Or if there is conviction, we've bought into this lie that, well, it's Christian liberty and I can do whatever I want to do. Look, at our small groups that were serving basis last week, we talked about Christian liberty. Christian liberty in communion. You have liberty in communion to rip and dip like we do sometimes here or to have the the pastor put it in your mouth and everybody to drink out of the cup and all those kind of things but we talked about at the end of our life groups that were sermon based what things can we do inside of occa as a church that would not offend those who don't have the same background that we have how could we make communion in our church more encompassing for somebody who maybe comes from a Catholic background who the priest puts it in your mouth and everybody drinks out of the cup? How can we not offend them? How can we put our Christian liberty to the side to love them? That's what true Christian liberty does, by the way. It says, I won't be condemned for doing it this way, but if you don't do it that way and it's offensive to you, I will put it to the side out of love for you. There is a word that I totally feel like I have the freedom in Jesus to say repeatedly, but I try to put that word to the side. There's actually two words that I feel total freedom to say, but I try to put that word to the side for the sake of my brothers and sisters that are offended by it. I don't use it as an, I don't use my liberty as an excuse to offend them. We have to live like our life is different. Some people approach God trusting in the grace and having the confidence in the grace, but they have no lifestyle that looks any different. Others approach Him with a lifestyle of holiness, but never have trusted in the grace. But God says we have to do both. 
We have to trust in the grace and let Him transform our lives. They, you, if you only have one, you have nothing. The second play in our playbook. We must hold fast to the hope we have in Jesus, even when we have reasons to doubt. So verse 22, the first one, let us draw near. Verse 23, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. For he who has promised is faithful. Notice that I said in this point that even when we have doubts, some people in Christian circles treat doubts like they are uh, the exact same thing as, as the most grievous sin they can think of. Some of the greatest saints that have ever walked the face of this planet had doubts. Some of the men and women who are sitting around you who you think are perfect pictures of the Christian faith right now in their life, they are struggling with doubts about what God is going to do in their life, where He's going to step in, and all of those things. The doubt is not the problem. Jesus did not condemn Peter for having a doubt on the water when he walked out. They said, why'd you doubt? Why'd you doubt? Peter doubted, but had faith enough to get out of the boat, and he's only one of two people that's ever walked on water. In action. When God calls us to do something, it's not the same thing as doubt. The other 11 stayed in the boat. They're the ones who missed out on the blessing. When we have doubt, we hold fast to Jesus. It is okay to say, Lord, I think you're calling me to do this and I have doubts and I am scared, but I'm going to step out there and if I fall, man, it's going to crush me, catch me, and step out there. Doubts are okay. Everybody has them, but we can't let them control us. He knows that we have real reasons to doubt. His plans and ways don't always look logical or good to us. That's what he tells us in his word. Your ways are not my ways. Your thoughts, they're not my thoughts. My ways and my thoughts are so much higher than yours. He doesn't say you're going to hell because you doubt. He says, don't walk away when you have doubt. You cling to me anyways. You hold fast to me. And then the third play from the playbook, right out of this passage of Scripture, verse 24 and 25 says that we must play as a team and hold each other accountable to letting our light shine before each other and the people of our community. Let's read it together. And let us consider how to stir one another up to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another all the more as you see the day drawing near. Right there in that passage of Scripture says... This And this is something I struggle with. When John misses church, John, what'd you miss for, man? Why weren't you here? You have permission from God, not only permission from God, but a command from God to stir one another up to good works and righteousness. Jesus went to, to the synagogue every single week. It actually says it in the scriptures that he did. 
Most of us have missed that. He goes in and he's teaching in the synagogue and it says, as was his custom. The scriptures tell us that, that, that God said to set aside one day each week and leave it and mark it as holy unto the Lord and to worship God on that day alone. And if we did not do that, we're guilty of sin. And the scriptures tell us that Jesus never sinned. So Jesus set aside Sabbath. Now we as evangelical Christians don't observe the Sabbath. We observe the, observe the Lord's day. The Sabbath, my friends, is still on Saturday. It is the last day of the week. Christians don't worship on the Sabbath usually. We worship on the Lord's Day, the day He was resurrected, the first day of the week. And I'm not saying that if a church meets on Saturday night, they're bad. They're not. But I'm saying that most Christian churches observe their worship service on the Lord's Day. But see, we fail to hold one another accountable to this thing out of this passage. I think there's several reasons why we, why we fail in this. We don't want to be accused of getting the, the speck out of Jeff's eye while I've got a log hanging in my own. That is the stupidest cop-out I have ever heard. Okay? Jesus wasn't saying, don't speak into your brother's thing. He was saying, don't be a self-righteous jerk. I've got no place to go to Jeff and say, Jeff, you need to stop slapping Carol around if I'm slapping Sarah around. Right? But if I've been, if, but if I've been uh, speeding, which is a sin, which is what I struggle with sometimes. The scripture tells us to obey the government. Okay, so it is a sin. I know it's tough. If I've been speeding, that doesn't mean I can't go tell Jeff stop beating Carol. Well, I've got a speck in, I've got a log in my eye, so I can't bring up to Jeff. No. It's I can't go to Jeff and act like everything in my life is perfect and boss Jeff around or to do that with Keith or to do that with anybody else. It is the stupidest excuse I've ever heard. The scripture tells us right here in this passage, consider how we can stir one another up to good deeds and righteousness. Here's another one why I think we don't do it. We struggle with submitting to one another because our culture has taught us the individual is more important than the church. I.e., Individual culture versus clan culture. Friends, the Bible is based in clan culture. There is nothing in the scripture that indicates a solo walk with Jesus. It is all about the clan. It is all about we are individually members of one body. You are the finger and I am the mouth. Some of you would say I was the rear end. <laughs> you know, uh, you know et cetera, et cetera. We're all part of one body. But we won't submit to one another. We have a problem submitting, one, submitting to one another because our culture values the individual more than the group. The American culture values the individual more than the group. And that is not biblical. The Bible values the group more than the individual. Jesus said, whoever wants to lead must be the one who serves everyone. It values the group higher than the individual. It is an upside-down pyramid.
personally, I, I, I view holding others, my, my struggle, I view holding others accountable as an annoyance. I'm not saying I'm right in this. I'm saying this is my own sin struggle. I want them to grow up and be responsible. Right? And, and it's wrong for me to view them that way. One of the things that I despise doing is tracking down people who are missing church. I'm like, it's not my job to make sure they're at church. I shouldn't have to hold their hand. I'm not saying I'm right in this. I'm saying this is my struggle, right? I'm like, when are they going to be responsible? When are they going to make it a priority? When are they going to do all these things? Or you could pick another, you could pick something, let's pick something not about attending church. I don't want to have to look at your covenant eyes report. When are you going to be responsible and make good choices and not have to make me hold your hand through this? This is my own personal struggle, but the Lord says here that it's not okay. I have to be in in those mutual relationships of accountability and encouraging you. Regardless of our personal hangups with any of these, Jesus says his playbook is part and parcel to the Christian faith. These are not optional things we can take or leave. We are to embrace them, learn them, and practice them. All of them. We are to have confidence in them, and then we will have victory. So if you're trying to take notes, if you want to write down the the very short versions of these, after we have confidence and trust in Jesus, we draw near in purity. We don't waver in our faith. We hold fast to our hope in Him. So you can say, draw near in purity, hold fast to Jesus, and stir one another up to let our light shine. These are the three things that we're supposed to do, but they only work out of the first two things. This is what we mean by pursuing Jesus Christ, building His kingdom, and proclaiming His offer of freedom, healing, and life. This is not some stupid mission statement that we just say every Sunday for no reason. It is an embodiment of this passage of Scripture. To pursue Him. To walk in boldness and confidence. To love Him. To glorify Him. To proclaim His offer of freedom, healing, and life. But, as is my custom, I don't want you to believe me. I want you to believe the Bible. Monday, I'd like you to read Hebrews 4, 14 through 16. Tuesday, Hebrews 2, 14 through 18. Wednesday, 1 Corinthians 6, 9 through 11. Thursday, 1 Corinthians 1, 4 through 9. Friday, Matthew 11, 25 through 30. And Saturday, Acts 2, 42 through 47. All of these passages of Scripture have to do with one aspect or another of this passage. Drawing near, encouraging one another, holding fast in our, in, our, in our faith when we waver and all of those things. So while I pray, I want to ask the worship team to come back forward to lead us in our offering time. Father, we thank you. We ask you that you would continue to speak into our lives and that you would transform us from the inside out. Lord, I pray that these three things, drawing near, holding fast to you, and and letting our light shine before men, would be things that can be done out of the confidence that we have in you and the empowerment of your spirit. It's in Jesus' name we pray and God's people said, amen.